Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. You can follow along with the reading on the screen behind me. And today's reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath with the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, guys. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, like Pastor Ian said, my name is Brandon. I'm a member here at the King's Church. But before we dive into our sermon this morning, I do want to acknowledge we've got some, some kiddos in the room this morning. So first we've got, um, I think, our preschool. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong. Our preschool and K through 1 classes. Okay, so preschool is to my right on the north side. You're going with Miss Molly. You can head up that way and head back to your classroom now. So if you're in preschool, and then K through 1, you're going with Miss Amy and Mr. Augie. Yeah, Miss Amy and Augie over here by the connection room. Uh, so K through 1, you can go with them. And then if you're in elementary age, um, so I know there's some of you in here, uh, you're going to be in here with us this morning. And we're super, super glad about that. We love having you guys in here. There should be some coloring sheets if you... If you want those and you can follow along, listen um, as we go, take notes, and then uh, we would love to talk to you at some point about what you heard today. So enjoy um, as you sit in here with us. Well, we live in an incredibly broken world, don't we? Think about it for half a second and I'm sure a mental picture or a sad thought or a horrible memory will pop up, whether it's natural disasters or accidents broken relationship, or cancer, or murder, or racism, and the list goes on and on. Our world is broken, and we've all experienced that at a visceral level, haven't we? Yet, this is our world, the only one we've got, the only one we know, and yet still deep inside us, there is this longing for something more, isn't there? There is a longing for things to be even just a little different, a little less painful, a little more happy, and a little less broken. 
But beyond just our world, I want us to get personal this morning. Now, no one is, is forcing you to share anything, um, but just silently where you are right now, I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever done. Your deepest regret, your darkest moment, your most horrific sin. No one might know about it. You might, have, might not have thought about it in years. But just for a moment, I want you to go there. You see, the brokenness of our world extends beyond just external situations and circumstances. I want to put forth that that brokenness is first and foremost an internal problem. An internal issue happening at the deepest level, causing every other problem we see in the world around us. You might not like it. I don't like it. But we know that both of these things are true at some level. We are broken. And subsequently, our world is broken. And yet, when we come to the Bible, especially something like our passage this morning in Ephesians, we see a different perspective. We see a perspective that is hopeful in a hopeless world. What it does point to is a, a greater reality, a greater hope, and an incredible grace that meets us right where we are despite all of the brokenness. The Bible, from start to finish, points to a God who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, and saves us. And that leads me to our main idea for my message today, coming from Ephesians 2, is this. By grace, God makes dead sinners alive through faith in Christ for his glory. So one more time. By grace, and grace alone, God makes dead sinners, alive through faith in Christ for his glory. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, God, we come to you this morning humbled. We come to you knowing that there is immense brokenness in the world, God, and yet we open your word and uh, we want to desire it. We want to know you, and specifically to know you through your word, God. So as we Look at Ephesians 2 this morning. Would you, would you grant us some level of understanding, God? Would you open our eyes to the good news of the gospel? Would you unite our hearts to that and allow us to apply it to our lives, God? And would you ultimately make us satisfied in you and you alone? All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get to uh, chapter 2, you know, we've been working through uh, chapter 1 up to this point in Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. He's coming off a, a prayer of thankfulness um, for the church and the church in general. And he's, he's touching on these, these doctrines or these truths about God and what God has done. And he goes from talking about the church as a whole uh, to the specifics or individuals that make up the church in chapter 2. And so in, in many ways, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, describes the normative individual Christian experience. So as you read through this or as you heard it read this morning, I want you to think about these verses. This is all of our stories in Christ. It was as true then in first century Ephesus as it is now in 21st century Lakeland. It may seem simplified, but we have all had this experience at some level. 
I believe we see this profoundly in the reality which is pointed to in verses 1 through 3, and that we are dead in our sins. Look back with me at Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 3. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So I don't know about you, but for me, it's comforting that the Bible doesn't hide or sugarcoat the difficulties of our lives. It's probably the reason I love the book of Ecclesiastes so much, because it seems so real, so raw, and resonates with our own experiences. I love that, that Paul doesn't sugarcoat these three verses either. He says it plain, you were dead. This is a statement of fact, a truth, a doctrine even, that we must wrestle with this morning. What does this mean, you were dead? You might think, I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm walking even, which Paul acknowledges later in verse 1. And sure, that, that, that might all be true. But, ta- but Paul is talking about something beyond just the physical realities of living. He is hinting at the essence of what it means to be alive. Paul, through his Holy Spirit-inspired letter, is pointing to the fact that we are simultaneously physical and spiritual beings. There are two realities happening, one which is clearly visible and one which is less visible but in no way less real. Think of it this way. Some of you are parents in here. I know a lot of the parents in this room, and a lot of you are really, really good parents. I mean that. Now, in one sense, you became a parent the moment you conceived a child. That is true. But any conversation I've had with a parent, they'll tell you, oh, we didn't know what we were doing. We had to figure it out as we went. And now that you've been doing it a little while, you're better at it and know what it means to be a parent. On the contrary, though, I've got friends I grew up with that I don't know how to put any other way, guys. They're just straight up deadbeat dads. They might legally be fathers, but for all intents and purposes, they aren't a parent. They can't tell me anything of what it's like to parent a child because they haven't been there. So you're, you're a parent when you show up. You're a parent when you live out that reality. You recognize who you are and act in a way that is in accordance to it. This is our reality too, guys. In a lot of ways, we are deadbeat humans. You and I were made in the image of God, created by a creator with a distinct purpose, a distinct design, and yet verse 1 tells us we are dead. Put in other words, we are malfunctioning. Something is broken, not the way it's supposed to be. And Paul tells us that's us. We are broken. Like dead batteries, we exist in the physical realm, but plug us in, try to turn on that device, and there's no light, there's no sound, there's no life. We exist, but we are dead. That deadness is tragic and far-reaching. If you look back at verses 1 through 3, 
After making this bold statement that we're dead, Paul goes on to describe the three enemies or causes of this deadness of soul. First, he claims uh, the natural course of the world is bent away from God, and apart from him, we will all just naturally follow along with it. Next, he blames the prince of the power of the air, which is a fancy way of saying Satan or the devil. and He's constantly ready to destroy what God has made. And then lastly, he points out that our flesh... Our very being and passions and desires are by nature corrupted and lead to death. So, what does this point to? I'm glad you asked. For me, this, this threefold argument points to the all-encompassing Christian doctrine of total depravity. This means human nature is thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall, which happened in Genesis 3. This is often a misunderstood doctrine. And so when I say total depravity, that doesn't mean that there's nothing good in the world. There's plenty of good. There's a good joke, an act of kindness, a beautiful sunset, a wonderful meal, maybe a pastry by anyone with the last name Hazelton. If you've had one, you know what I'm talking about. What total depravity points out is there is nothing in this world that has not been affected by the nature of sin and the fall. There is nothing left untainted. That means their beauty isn't as beautiful as it should be. Even the best parts of, of, of you have sin mixed in. It's in your DNA. As Andrew put it um, another week, he said, the chocolate chips are baked into the cookies, right? So additionally, total depravity doesn't mean that someone is as evil as they possibly could be. No, we're all capable of truly horrendous things and left without restraint, we would continue to get worse and worse. But there are still degrees of brokenness and wickedness. Things can always be worse. To make it an analogy, total depravity is like poison in a bowl of punch. You can put a lot or you can put a little bit. But either way, I'm, I'm probably not going to drink it, right? It will kill you. The thing is, we've all drunk from this bowl. In fact, we were born into it. We've breathed it in and exhaled it out since our first breath. Dane Ortland, um, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, puts it this way. He says, consider the overall impact of these three verses. Paul is not speaking of sin in the way we often do. I messed up, I made a mistake, I'm struggling with. No, Paul identifies sin as the comprehensive, enveloping, inexorable flow of our lives. Our sins are less like an otherwise healthy man occasionally tripping up and more like a man who is disease-ridden head to foot, or if we take the language of Ephesians 2 seriously, dead. So as we wrestle with and experience the far-reaching nature of sin, God doesn't leave us here, does he? No, the truth and the beauty of God comes at the beginning of verse 4. Look at it with me. Verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that 
in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there's a clear contrast to verses 1 through 3, beginning in verse 4. In fact, verse 4 is the hinge, so to speak, upon which this whole section hangs. We could go so far as to say uh, all of reality and eternity hangs upon these two simple words, but God. Whole sermons and books have been written on verse 4 alone. In fact, that book I just quoted, Gentle and Lowly, uh, chapter 13 uh, of it, you'll hear me quote it several more times this morning. It's because uh, it was written all around Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And so with that being said, I'm, I'm sure we'll leave uh, much, much left unsaid about the realities found in these verses. But I do think we see two beautiful realities about God in this section. First, we see who he is. And second, we see what he has done in Christ for us. So first of all, who is this God? What is he like? What is his character? What is his nature? Four key words paint a picture of God for us in this section. It says he is rich in mercy. He has great love. He has grace and he has kindness. So mercy, love, grace, and kindness. This is what our God is like. This is at the essence who our God is. He is all the way good. There is no sin in him. And so when we talk about total depravity, like we talked about in verses 1 through 3, we're talking about the post-fall, post-Genesis 3 world. Everything that came after that was affected by sin. But God existed before this and is therefore unaffected, untainted, unharmed by the depravity inside of you and me and all of man. God is completely pure, holy, good, merciful, and beautiful. So again, Ortland is helpful. He says, because mercy is who he is. If mercy was something he simply had while his deepest nature was something different, there would be a limit on how much mercy he could dole out. But if he is essentially merciful, then for him to pour out mercy is for him to act in accord with who he is. It is, simple, it is simply for him to be God. When God shows mercy, he is acting in a way that is true to himself. Once again, this does not mean that he is only merciful. He is also perfectly just and holy. He is rightly wrathful against sin and sinners. Following scripture's lead and how it talks about God, however, these attributes of moral standard do not reflect his deepest heart. Our God is mercy, family. This reality plays out in every single action that he does. So, specifically, what has he done in these verses? Four actions are described in this section. It says God has made us alive. God has saved us from death. He has raised us up and seated us with him. Again, Paul, love the guy, is writing in dichotomies. Christ has done this, and now he's saying, we have done it. But we're still here, physically, right? So what does that mean? Is he speaking figuratively, or is he speaking literally, or what is he saying? Well, much in 
The same way we were dead men walking, we are now simultaneously here and in Christ. This is done by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. You are literally in him as we put our faith in him. Our regenerate hearts make us a real part of the body of Christ. His Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the seal of approval. This unity is by grace and is the heart of the gospel. I was struck by this question this week. Where do we think Jesus went when he died? When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven. But think about that for a second. When he descended to hell, where did he go? I often think about him rolling up, knocking on the doors, saying, Satan, come out here, ready to fight, and just knocks him out easily, of course, and then heads back up to paradise with his pops, right? But that's not, that's not an accurate picture of what happened when Jesus descended. When Jesus descended to hell, he bore the wrath of all sin for all people of all time. This means he went to the depths of hell, treated worse and despised more than Hitler, more than KKK members, more than child abusers, and dare I even say, Satan himself. He was completely forsaken, horribly punished, and yet from the depths of depth, he rose, seated in the Holy of Holies at the height of heavens and at the right hand. This means he has covered the entire spectrum. He has conquered everything in between, which is quite literally everything. And now his spirit is the one at work in us. It is his spirit uniting us to his work by grace alone. So this is a uniquely and radically Christian concept. It says God died for you. You did nothing, and yet you will get Jesus. You will get the perfect relationship for all eternity with the God of the universe. God made you go from dead to alive. God saved you. This is the gospel. This is good news. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is regeneration language. This is uh, a doctrine, so to speak, in, in, in the Christian life. And it, it can't be um, overemphasized. Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person. Nor is it about starting a new religious routine. It is about becoming a new person. Yet, you can't make yourself new. God must do this work. And if he has, what does that look like for you? Romans 2 um, puts it this way. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, not knowing that, his, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So family, as God reveals himself to us, 
We are to continuously repent of our sin and to trust him in faith. That's what it looks like. The gospel doesn't change, but the gospel has the power to change us. It's been said the gospel can either melt ice or harden clay, and I would add, all that it can't do is neither. It can't not be hot. So, family, what is the gospel doing in your life? These contrasts lead us to our last point, and that is, why would God do this? We are sinners. We see God as merciful, loving, gracious, and kind, and so he chose to save us, right? To live and die for us. Now we've been made alive to him, but why? The answer is found in verses 8 through 10. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. So, family, we were made for the glory of God. To know him, to with him, to love and to worship him for all eternity. In a practical way, what does it mean to be saved through faith? It means to believe. John 6 says this, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the means of grace by which God is bringing about his fullest glory. What do I mean when I say that? I mean to say that God created the universe for his own glory, for his own pleasure, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. Yet we messed it up. We completely wrecked, wreaked havoc. And yet because of who God is, he decided to fix it to redeem it. He hasn't left us alone, but is still actively working in a way that only he can. All of this is to fill his original design and plan to bring about his glory. And in fact, he is choosing to use us in his plan. This is his means of grace. Jeff Vanderstilt, in his book, uh, Gospel Fluency, says this. The work we are called to do is to rest from our own work, to make ourselves right with God and believe in the work of Jesus on our behalf. We are saved by faith in Jesus' work, not our own. We all live by faith in someone or something, and everything that we are and do is a result of what we believe. Behaviors are the tangible expression of our beliefs. So there's an important word in verse 10 when it says we are his workmanship. It's a unique and interesting word. It's where we most likely get our English word uh, poem, and it's used to refer to any work of art such as a statue or a song or a painting here or poem. It's only used one other time in scripture, and that's in Romans 1.20, and it refers to material creation. So the heavens and the earth around us, they display the glory of God in his ability to create. But this here in Ephesians 2 is talking about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth with a new people. Revelations 21 says, behold, I am making all things new. 
And Romans 8 says, remind, or reminds us that God is working all things together for good for those who love him. So this is God's workmanship. This is, we are God's workmanship. He's taking malfunction and brokenness of verse 1 and turning it into beautiful poetry in verse 10. That's beautiful to think about. A fancy Christian word we use a lot for this is God's sovereignty. When we say God's sovereignty, we simply mean that God is in control, but like complete control, which means we aren't. You aren't. I'm not. You might not like that. I know I didn't like it the first time I heard it, but it is true. It means that God is in control over the world, our lives, and even the work that we do. Therefore, quite naturally, if he is using us in any way, he is also using the things we do, the good deeds we walk in. In fact, maybe he has even purposed them for your good and his glory simultaneously. John Stott says this. He says, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. Thus, the paragraph ends as it began with our human walk, a Hebrew idiom for our manner of life. Formerly, we walked in trespasses and sins in which the devil has trapped us, and now we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us to do. You see, your behavior reveals your beliefs. And yet, Paul reminds us in Romans 7 that even as we are in Christ, we will struggle. He says, he says in Romans 7, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So for us, there is still a very real struggle in the Christian life. We experience this. It's what it means to be a Christian. So for those of us in Christ, be encouraged. Guys, this is our story. This is the normative Christian experience in Ephesians 2 in light of the struggle of Romans 7. In Christ, we all have a but God moment. Think about yours. Believe and trust that if he did that, he is still working and in you and through you for his glory. So, keep fighting the good fight. Keep making much of him Go about loving and serving boldly to the glory of God. Go about being what he has already made you in Christ. Keep believing. Keep repenting. He has not left us alone, but has given us and is empowering us to keep going by his Holy Spirit. For those of you who hear this and you realize you have not had this experience, Maybe you grew up in church and yet this hasn't ever been part of your story. Maybe you've, you've gone to church but nothing stuck and you floated in and out. 
Or maybe for someone in here, this is your first time ever in a church. A friend invited you and you decided, why not? I'll go. And now you hear us singing and you hear me talking about this thing called the gospel and you feel completely like a fish out of water in this room. I want you to know you're not alone. I've been in your shoes and I also am aware that I can sound intense when I talk. Okay? I know I can raise my voice, but believe me, I'm not yelling at you guys. And I'm definitely in no way trying to manipulate your emotions by anything that I say. I just believe these 10 verses, guys. I believe they're true. I believe they're true because they've been true in my life. I was 20 years old before I ever stepped foot in a church. friend invited me in the height of my arrogance I thought I can go to church I'm in control of my life right God can't do anything in my life unless I allow him so sure I'll go it doesn't mean anything so I go to church hungover um, from a night of underage drinking with my college athlete teammates who in my distorted mind somehow made me a superior human being than everybody else and I show up to the church and I begin just judging everything and everyone so I sit down in the back row and everyone stands up and begins singing and uh, in my mind I mocked them I thought Look at these idiots singing some sort of group karaoke. I didn't know. I didn't know. To put it in perspective, guys, I, I, I literally did not know people sang in church. And so they're singing, and then these words come on the screen, and they all um, begin reciting them out loud. And I think, what is this? This is some sort of brainwashed cult? I'm not joking, guys. I'm sitting in the back just thinking this, just hardened to everything that was happening around me. But then something happened. This old man, he walked to the front. He brought out a whiteboard. He started talking about this thing called the gospel. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I wanted it. I wanted to believe it. So in that moment, I didn't realize this is what was happening. I can only look back on it months or years later even. But in that moment, the Lord, like Paul on the road to Damascus, my life was going one way. And somehow, someway, scales fell from my eyes. My heart was softened. And the whole trajectory of my life changed. And so I tell you that story. Not to make myself look great. I wasn't. I don't know if anyone in here knew me back then. 
but you would know that I wasn't. But I tell you that story because maybe, just maybe, there's one of you in here that the Lord wants to stir in that way this morning, that he wants to touch in that way this morning. And so if, if that's true, all I want to say is welcome home. Just know you don't have to go about this life alone. You can talk to one of us after service. Talk with one of the pastors. Talk with who invited you here. Let's walk this thing out together. Don't spend another day of your life not in a relationship with our Lord. So I'm going to conclude like this. I'm going to read the words of an old hymn. Most of you probably know it. It's called Amazing Grace. I want you to just slow down in this moment. I want you to hear them and read along with them on the screen and think about think about what they may mean in your life and apply them as you see fit it says this amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found I was blind but now I see was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Ah, Father, God, blown away, blown away at your mercy and your kindness in this moment and ultimately Lord what you have done for us in Christ God right now I just lift up the name of Jesus Lord I lift you up in this place God and we are incredibly grateful that we can gather in a place like this sing songs to you look at your word God so I ask that you be with every single person in this room Lord, would you move in a way that only you can? Lord, we trust you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.